Good morning, good morning, Journey. Why don't you go ahead and stand and join us? Hope you're excited about being in church this morning. We're going to start off with some worship. We're going to teach you a brand new song as we get started. So feel free to sing as we get going. Okay. 
Good morning, good morning. If you've noticed, today is the first of the month, first Sunday of the month, month, which means we get to celebrate communion together. Four corners of every room we have set up for you guys, uh, the elements to participate in communion. But I love communion Sunday um, because I feel like it breaks up a lot of the stuff. And uh, the verse that God gave me for this morning to just kind of encourage with is Matthew 26, 26 through 28. It says, while we were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't spend a whole lot trying to focus on Like, I feel like there's this tension when it comes to church. You got the extremes. You got the ones who are just like, yeah, I mean, Jesus loves you, and grace is everything about everything. And it's like, you get so filled. It's like so good and so grace that you just sometimes are wondering, like, so what was the Savior for? What's what's the cross about then? Like, but then you hit the other side, and you got the Turner burn, like, you're... Dang, like pastors who want to dangle your feet over the hellfires and make sure that you're like your toes are feeling toasty that you know you are seconds away maybe from the pit of hell you may die at any moment and your soul is at stake and uh I just don't find that either. I find that God is, the whole point of what he's doing is, yes, we have to address that there is sin without addressing that we have it and that we are in need of a savior. If we don't feel the fact that that is a reality, then what happens is when God offers the gift, it's a gift that we don't feel we need. It's, a, it's as if I'm being offered something. Have you ever been given a gift at like Christmas or your birthday or something like that? And you, you got it and you opened it up and you're just like, what? And then you regifted it to somebody else? I've done that. This is not like that. Because what God is doing here is showing us this is a gift that each of us need. We just don't, we may not know that we need it yet. And so when we celebrate communion, this isn't God saying you're the worst person ever. We get to recognize that for ourselves. But his whole point is showing Jesus saying, I have the solution. Yes, we got to address that that's a reality because if we don't, then you don't need the cross and you don't need what I did on the cross. And then that negates the whole church. Why are we even here if that's not, if we're not in need of a savior? But on the other side, the good news is that it's already been accomplished. The good news is that when we take communion, it's, it's about remembering. It's about taking on the second of just worship. It opens up a whole new element to our worship where it's not just about singing songs, but we get to reflect because what it does is it kind of makes... Like, my mind, it kind of plays through like a slideshow of what I've needed forgiveness for. And instead of running from that, I just embrace that and hand it over to Jesus, and I just say thank you. And it, it brings a whole new depth and a richness to my worship because I have something to be grateful for. Don't we have something to be grateful for this morning? So as we worship through the next two songs, can I encourage you? Take your time with this. But when you are ready... Go find your spot, grab one of the the elements at one of the four tables, bring it back to your seat, and just reflect. Allow the flood of thoughts and recognition of our shortcomings come to the service, not so that we can just beat ourselves up and feel really crappy, but so that we can offer that to Jesus and again remember the gift that we are receiving. That it is paid for, it is bought, it is done. And then let us worship.
from the depths of our hearts a God who provides all of our needs, whether we recognize it or not. And we're going to just sing. But let me pray over us before we do that. God, I just pray that this would be a moment that isn't just going through the motions and traditions and, and religious observance. God, I pray that in this moment we would see our relationship with you, that we would see the hope that you offer, that we would recognize and remember what has been done for us, God. That we would stand in awe. That we would recognize that worship is not about us at all, whether it's what we're feeling or not feeling or how we're singing or whether that's really our style or our thing or not. It is about you, Jesus. You are worthy. And I pray, Father, that we would just find ourselves so overwhelmed with gratitude this morning that our worship would be pure and from our hearts and that you would be glorified. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
is out. Let's stir it up in this place this morning. By your spirit I will rise from the ashes of defeat. The resurrected King is resurrecting me. In your name I come alive to declare your victory. The resurrected King is resurrecting me. By your spirit I will rise from the ashes of defeat.
morning, good morning, Journey Church. Y'all can grab a seat. Grab a seat. My name is Randall. I'm just a guy that goes here. Um, but today I'm going to be talking about our tithes and our offerings. And, and today I'm using some inspiration. I got, I was listening to a sermon series from a small pastor in Atlanta, Georgia named Andy Stanley. He has 40,000 campuses or something like that. Um, but he started off with a simple premise. The premise was money is not the meaning of life. Can we agree to that? And he took it another step. He said, not only is money not the meaning of life, having money doesn't even necessarily mean you will have a meaningful life, right? There's no intrinsic meaning to just money itself. And we know this, whether your bank account has a whole bunch of zeros or just one big zero, we know this because last night, nobody took their bank account to the movies, did they? Nobody tucked their bank account in bed and read it a bedtime story because money itself does not have meaning. But instead, it's what we do with our money that can create meaning and has to create meaning. It's not the only means to a meaningful life, but it needs to be used as a means to a meaningful life because if you're not using your money to have a meaningful impact in your community, that means your money has control over you. And we have to be in control of our money to reflect our God and Jesus' love for us. And I think there's a great depiction of that that Journey Church has provided. So just last week, our Grace Resources team went out and they gave their money, they gave their time, and they were able to serve over 200 meals to the members of our community who needed it most. And not only did they provide them with physical nourishment, but they gave them emotional nourishment. They spent time with them in fellowship and they showed them what God's love can look like in a real sense. That's what it means to have your money turn into meaningful impact. And that's what God calls us to do. So today as the ushers come forward, I just wanna say a blessing and a prayer that we would find ways to use this thing that by itself has no meaning whatsoever, but can turn into real impact and that your heart wouldn't be controlled by your money, but that you would be leveraging it for God and for our community. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we come to you today just in a, in a place of gratitude that you give us the ability to make meaning with our money and to show our world your love and your impact. And I've asked that you would bless what's being given today. I'd ask that you do that in a way that shows our community your love, that Journey Church would be wise with the offerings we're collecting, and that we would do all these things in your name. Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So you can give three ways online, in person, in the buckets, or you can also text GIVE to 661-441-3511. Uh, but thank you for your time today. Ashley, my wife, is going to join me now for some announcements. As she comes up, fifth and sixth graders, you all can be dismissed. Thank you for worshiping with us. Y'all can head out to the main lobby and meet your group leader. Hey, good morning. Welcome to any new guests. Welcome back to those of you who've been coming for a while. And whether you're here in person or joining us online, we're really excited that you're choosing to spend Sunday morning with us. 
we're going to start by making you aware of a few resources around the building. So if you're here with a little one that maybe gets fussy, we have a space in the back of the auditorium just for you. It's known as our cry room. You can still hear and see the message, but it'll provide you with a little bit of privacy if you find yourself needing that this morning. Also, we're going to be referencing the hotspot a good bit. That's our information desk. It's just out these back doors and to the right. So if you have any questions or want to get more info, that's where you'll want to head after service. And speaking of information, if you want to be tied into everything that's happening here at Journey Church, I definitely recommend you sign up for our newsletter. At the very top, you can see you can sign up at avjourney.com, or if you'd like to, just stop by the hotspot and we can get you signed up today after service. So it takes a ton of hands and volunteers to make the production side of service work on Sunday morning. So thank you to those of you who are already part of our video ministry team. Um, but we are also looking for new faces to join that. So if you're at all interested, go ahead and mark your calendar for Sunday, March 17th. We're going to be hosting an information session as well as a quick training right there after second service. Yeah, and I confirmed no technical skills are needed to be a part of this team. Everyone is qualified. Everyone. You especially. Um, hey, another great thing we're excited about is our first Connect Night of 2019. It's going to be this week. Tuesday, March the 5th, 6.30 to 8. We're also going to have a food truck here. So if you want to plan on eating dinner at church, I would recommend show up a little bit early, beat the line. This is a great, great avenue to either meet some new people or just put names with the faces that you guys are sitting next to in rows every single Sunday morning. It's going to be a great event. We'll hopefully see you there this Tuesday at 6.30. And another way to get connected would be to join a life group. These have just started up, and for the next two months, we're going to be meeting bi-weekly to work through the book um, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. So these are just starting. We're really excited to be a part of it. And if you weren't able to join us last week but want to join, you absolutely still can. We haven't actually started with the content of the book yet, so there's plenty of time. What you'll want to do is just head out the back doors to the hotspot and make sure you're signing up at the end of service. And this will allow the hosts to reach out to you to make sure you know where you're headed and what you'll need to be prepared. So we're gonna work through that book. You can buy that online, but also we have a few copies for sale right at the hotspot. Yeah, we're having five different life groups. Those are all spread out through Palmdale and Lancaster. The idea is you're able to find one that's convenient for you to come to from a geographical standpoint. Uh, we know weeks can be busy. We wanna make sure that it's an easy step if you're interested in getting further connected. So Ashley and I are hosting a group, but there's four other groups as well. And we would really love if you wanna step out, stop by the hotspot and get some more information. That's all we have for you today. So as Dave comes and joins us on Steve, on stage, Steve, uh, go ahead, stand up, say hello to somebody around you. Thanks, and have a great Sunday.
Good morning, everybody. Grab a seat. Let's get started. And by the way, I know these guys are such amazing announcement team, but I just want to add it just please get to a, a life group. If you're not connected somewhere, people say, I don't know anybody. People get started. They love the church, but they don't ever connect, and then they just kind of fall away. We just... We care so much about your life. The reason we have life groups is not because we need another thing to do. It's because we truly believe Jesus made us to do life together, to strengthen one another, to encourage one another, to support, you know, sometimes kick each other in the rear when we need it. Moving forward together is the kingdom. That's what we're doing. So if you don't have a way to do that, if you're not already invested in a group of people and they're not already invested in you, get to a life group starting Thursday nights and, uh, it, yeah, Stop by the hotspot if you want more info. All right, question. Who has hurt you most in your life? Don't say it. They may be here. So, but if I were to ask you who has hurt you most in your entire life, I bet for many of you there's probably a face that's kind of flashed through your memory. There may be a group of faces that may be a circumstance that just kind of comes back up and you're like, thanks a lot, Dave. I came to church to feel better, you know, not to think about that. But here's the point. The fact of life is that every one of us will be hurt. You don't get through this without some wounds. That's why it's so critical that we have a life skill. We develop a life skill of how to get over our hurts. They're just a part of existence as humans. So What's the typical reaction? How is the typical response to hurt? Hurt back, right? Revenge, retaliate. What's the old saying? Don't get mad, get. And that's what we want. I mean, can't we just picture in our minds that perfect scenario where we just nail them to the wall, where we get them back? I, I used to kind of sit and think about certain individuals who had hurt me and how I'd like to. And folks, I can get really creative I mean, I can get really inventive when it comes to repaying somebody for something they've done to me. But here's the deal. Um, what I've learned is revenge doesn't work. I, I've tried it. And believe me, revenge can't replace your loss. It can't heal your broken heart. Revenge does not restore that sense of wholeness or that remo remove that pain, or no, nor does it put back the thing that was broken in you. So even if you get revenge, chances are you're still going to be resentful. Chances are you're still going to feel like life is not what it could be. And, and so what we do is we hold on to hurts and they turn to hate. And then that's really big trouble. This past week, I did quite a bit of reading about the connection of our lives, our feelings, our emotional state, our physical state, our spiritual state, when it comes to this whole idea of processing our hurts, processing our wounds. And I want to go over some of that. In fact, there's an article from the Johns Hopkins Medical Site, um, Dr. Angela Butimer, and basically she was a cancer wellness doctor. She said this, when we hold on to grudges and resentment, it's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to get sick. Grudges hurt the immune system. Living in a chronic state of tension disables your body's repair mechanisms, increasing inflammation and stress hormone, cortisol in the body. So if you're tempted to dwell on an offense, remember, your brain doesn't know what is real and what is imagined. When you replay an experience in your mind, your body reacts as if 
you're having the same experiences over and over again. That's crazy. That your body doesn't know the difference between what happened and what is now happening if you recall an instance of pain. So if we, what I also discovered is that when we think about something, when we rehearse our hurts, we bring them back to consciousness. When we allow those things to trigger us and we go to that place of wound over and over, it literally creates neural pathways where it's like a little road that becomes a freeway that gets solidified in our brains. So that when you're hurt, it can go straight back to that same thing, that same person, and you begin to resent and re resent and resent, and to the point you hate this person. It's so powerful that your brain doesn't distinguish between what happened way back then and what's happening right now. If you unleash that memory, those emotions go right there, and your body responds as if it was present now. So there are serious consequences to holding on to hurt. Here are a couple. Physical. The, I'm sorry. Let's start with the emotional. Emotional consequences I've discovered. Anger. Sadness, confusion, chronic anxiety, depression, PTSD, lack of energy, loss of meaning, loss of purpose, lethargy. Do I need to go on? There are emotional ramifications holding on to things that have hurt us. Not only that, there's physical consequences. Let's talk about inflammation, high blood pressure, heart disease brain dysfunction, even cancer. found this very interesting. Recent study that they did found out 61% of the respondents in a cancer research study admitted that they struggled with forgiveness issues. 61%. Now, it doesn't mean that gives you cancer, but what they're saying is there's a correlation between people who cannot forgive and the sickness that takes place in our body. Our body isn't meant to carry these hurts. So, what do we do? The final thing is spiritual. There are some really, really significant... And if you, man, if you are here today for nothing else, I hope you understand this. This is what Jesus said about your spiritual forgiveness consequences. Your heavenly Father, Matthew 6, 14, will forgive you if... I don't know where my slides are. There we go. If you forgive those who sin against you. Let me say it again. Your Heavenly Father will forgive you if you forgive those who sin against you. I don't know how that fits in your theology, but Jesus said it. There it is. But if you, do, if you refuse to forgive them, He will not forgive you. Man, I don't know if there's anything in your mind that you want forgiven. I don't know if there's anything in your past that you hope God looks past or what God will forgive. I don't, I don't know if there's anything you're praying the blood of Jesus has covered so that you don't answer for but you better pray that you also forgive those people who have done the same or done things to you. Colossians 3.13. Be gentle and ready to forgive. Never hold grudges. Remember, the Lord forgave you so you must, not should, not if it feels good, not if they say sorry, you must forgive others. Luke 6.37. Forgive others and you will be as a result of forgiveness, you will be forgiven. And it's, it's so interesting that the scriptural antidote for hurt is not getting somebody to say they're sorry. It's not getting even. It's not getting bitter or resentful. The only effective way to get over a hurt is to forgive. And this is what we discover today.
And if anybody had good reason to hate, to resent, to not forgive somebody, man, it was Joseph. Remember the story we've been in for the last four weeks. He was 17 years old. His brothers hated him because his dad favored him. Favorite kid, it's a terrible thing to do to your family. But his dad favored him, so the brothers hated him. First chance they got at 17 years old, they sold him to passing slave traders. Out in the field, they saw these, they sold him. He was taken to Egypt, put on the auction block, sold to Potiphar, who was the lead of the, the secret guard or the, the, the guard of Pharaoh in Egypt. He was the head guardian. And he was then, he took Joseph into his house. Joseph had to learn a new culture, a new language, new people. He, he basically was ripped out of everything he knew. Then he was accused because he began to rise up and because his character was such that everybody loved and respected Joseph. He became the head of the whole household. Potiphar's wife took an interest in him. She tried to seduce him. He refused her over and over and over. And one day, she actually screamed rape because he refused and ran out of the room. She grabbed his jacket, screamed rape, and Joseph then is taken and thrown in prison. And what we find is Joseph in prison for year after year after year after year. He was 17 when he was taken to Egypt. He's 30 years old before he is released from prison. Think of all of those years. He sat in there absolutely innocent. Not only innocent, he did the right thing and the wrong thing happened as a result. Has that ever happened to you? So what was his mind like reaching for when he's trying to put this all together, when the pieces have to make sense in his mind in order for the world to have any meaning? He's trying to put meaning and purpose and then what happens next? Most people would go really, really bitter. So after years in prison, forgotten, finally, he, he has a guy come into prison that is a, is a royal official, and the guy comes to him, and he says, I need help. I had a dream, and Joseph interprets his dream, and he said, wow, three days from now, you're going to be released. But when you're released, please remember me. Remind Pharaoh that I'm here unjustly, and get me out of here. And of course, the guy, three days later, is released. He goes back to his position next to Pharaoh, totally forgets about Joseph, and it says two years later, Joseph is still in prison. Man, you talk about a guy who had lots and lots and lots of reason to be very, very resentful. Every reason to hate the people who had caused this, which were his brothers, this woman, this guy who forgot him. And they deserved to be punished, right? That's what we think. I want to do to them what they did to me. But Joseph didn't do what most people do. That's why we're studying him. Joseph is so extraordinary. He did something that changed his life and the life of everyone in his family. He did something that affected the generations that would come and then the people groups that would come across the earth to the Jewish nation and then to the whole world. He was one of the people who was responsible. He was one of the responsible people for the way that God moved in the world. And this is what we learned today. He practiced the most powerful thing. He practiced forgiveness. So back to the story. What we discover is with Joseph's help, where we left off last week, Pharaoh had a dream, and he didn't know what it meant, so he was looking everywhere. Finally, they said, oh, this guy in prison knows how to interpret dreams. They bring him to, jo to uh, Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him the dream. Joseph interprets the dream. Hey, what's going to happen is we have seven years. They're going to be really, really good for our kingdom. Seven years of unbelievable prosperity. And then seven years of calamity. Famine is going to hit the whole 
nation and world. So for seven years, you need to store up everything that you can, and then the seven years that follow, we'll have an abundance, and we'll be able to care for our people. Well, of course, Pharaoh says, well, who is wiser than you? Why don't you come and administrate my kingdom? I'll make you the prime minister, second in charge. Only I am over you. And you do all these things you've talked about. Set up the, store, the storehouses, set up the granaries and the, and the leading cities. You do this. So Joseph became, in that moment, the head of the entire kingdom under Pharaoh. What we find is then famine did come. Seven years of prosperity, you know, saving everything up, then seven years. The famine came, and it crept across the, the nation of Egypt, and then it spread to the entire known world. The Bible says it's it, across the face of the earth. This famine came. Soon the surrounding nations got wind that there was food in Egypt. They began bringing their wealth to Egypt. We wonder how you know, Egypt got so powerful, so wealthy. They brought their wealth to Egypt to buy grain, to survive. Lo and behold, in the land of Canaan, there was a family with 11 sons, mom and dad, moms and dad, who were running out of food. And here's Jacob, the father of Joseph, who thought Joseph was dead because his boys came home and said, oh, look at his ripped up robe. Looks like somebody ate him. Sorry, dad. There's, there's this guy, Jacob. He says, it looks, he's looking at his sons, and the, I love the verse in scripture. It says, he said to them, why are you sitting around looking at each other? Why are you just staring at each other like we're going to fix the problem by just sitting here? I'm old, and I mean, I've turned over the business to you guys. What are you doing? And basically, the story goes that he says, why don't you get up and go to Egypt? Because we've heard that there's food there. So go to Egypt and find us some food. And there's nine brothers, I'm sorry, uh, ten brothers get up to go. Ten of them, because guess what? This guy, Jacob, had four wives. His favorite wife was Rachel. His favorite wife had his favorite children, Joseph and Benjamin, the two youngest. What we find is that since Joseph is supposedly dead and gone, he's grasped hold of Benjamin, the youngest. And that has become his pride and joy. So when the brothers are sent to Egypt, guess who is not sent? Once again, the favoritism, Benjamin stays home with dad. So what happens, they arrive in Egypt, they didn't recognize Joseph, but Joseph quickly recognized them. Now remember, he'd totally been in Egypt for all of these years, and now he's taken on the dress, and he's taken on the language, he, he probably had his face completely shaved because they despised facial hair, it was uncouth, um, maybe had the makeup and the outfit, the royal attire, he was definitely dressed to the nines, he was the most powerful man in the kingdom next to Pharaoh, so they didn't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognized them, and he brings them in, and he starts questioning them, where do you come from? Why are you here? All the way from Canaan? Well, are you spying on our country? Is that why you're here? Oh, no, Lord, we're not spying on our, your country. We, we're, we're 10 sons out of 12, and you know, one is no more, and the other's back home with dad. He goes, oh, really? One is no more. And, and, and the other one, oh, that's the son of my father's beloved wife, and he's home, with, he's home with dad. Well, why don't you go get him so I can make sure you're telling me the truth. Go, tell you what, let's, let's have him brought to Egypt. And they panicked. They're like, no, Lord, please, don't, anything but that. 
So it says he put him in jail for three days. And think about it, three days versus 13 years or whatever. Three days, he held them there while he's, and I just picture his mind is just wailing. What do I do? What do I do? Whoever believed, I, I mean, he probably thought one day he might come across them, but now he's like, they're right here. I've got them where I want them. I've got all the power. I've got all the might. And I've got these wimpy crybabies in my jail. What do I, I mean, I, this is my window. God has set it up. He teed it up for me. I'm going to whack them really good. This is whack them all day. I mean, just think about it. So what happens is they said, go get, and, and he comes back after three days. Tell you what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change the plan. Here's the plan. I want you to send all 10 of you back. I mean, so yeah, all 10 of you, and I want to keep one of you. And I want to take that one. He picks out Simeon. Now picture this, because when the, when the day that Joseph was sold into slavery, Reuben the oldest was in charge of the clan. He was the one watching out for everything, but he was away for some reason that day. He comes back and finds out Joseph was sold and he was sick. The second in command, the second oldest was Simeon. So it's interesting that Joseph chose to keep Simeon in jail while the others returned home to get Benjamin. He goes, the only way you'll see my face again is if you bring your younger brother here and prove to me you're not spies. So these guys are like panicked. So they head out back on their way to Canaan to get Benjamin and return to rescue their brother, to ransom their brother in Egypt. And on their way home, what they found was not only did Joseph send them home, but he filled up their sacks with grain, and then he secretly stuck all of their money bags back in the top of their grain sacks and had them tied up and put on their donkeys. So as they stopped the first night to get their food out of the sacks and feed their donkeys, one of them discovers, oh my Lord, we my money is back in my sack. Not only does he think we're spies, now he's going to think we're thieves. We better run for life. So they basically head all the way to Canaan. They start eating the grain. They tell their dad what happened. Dad, we're so sorry. Um, this guy, he came to us and he told us, you know, he thought we were spies and, and he, wouldn't, he wouldn't let us, you know, he wouldn't let us all come home unless we bring our younger brother back and, and prove to him we're not spies. So we've got to take Benjamin. Sorry, Dad, we've got to take Benjamin back in order to rescue Simeon. And how did Jacob respond? Well, then that means that Joseph's dead, and now Simeon's dead. In other words, you're not taking this son. <laughs> Simeon's a goner, and you're no, there's no way you're going to take my son Benjamin away from me. No way. So we find that days go on, weeks, months. We don't know how long the grain lasted from all these bags of grain that they took home. But it said when the grain ran out, then Jacob said to his sons, his ten sons that were there, Go get some more grain in Egypt. And they said, Dad, we told you we can't. The man said we, do, we are not permitted back unless we bring Benjamin. So we've got to take Benjamin. He goes, you're not taking Benjamin. Dad, then we can't dare go. Finally, Simeon, I'm sorry, um, the, the other brother steps up. And this is Judah. Judah convinced Jacob there was no other way. Dad, either Benjamin goes or none of us go. But here's the deal. I'm going to give you my family. I'm good. Dad, if we don't do this, the entire line, and that means Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the promise that has been descending now that God said he was going to make us a massive people, cover the earth, bless all nations through us, that's all going to come to a stop unless you do this. Dad, so here's the deal. I will surrender my kids, my family, my future. I'm going to surrender my dreams. I'm going to give them all to you. I'm going to put them in your care. And if anything happens to Benjamin, you can take their lives, make them your slaves, do whatever you want. 
We've got to do this, Dad. This is what he did. So Judah surrenders his kids, and he finally gets his dad to agree. They pack up Benjamin, and they head back for Egypt. When they arrive, Joseph sees them and instantly tells his servant, now go prepare a feast at my house and invite them all to join me. When they hear that they've been invited to the private home of the most powerful guy under Pharaoh, they're panicked. They're like, oh my gosh, he found out about us with our money. He found out. He thinks we stole from him. He's going to kill us. So they go have this meal, and Joseph, when he sees Benjamin, it says, when he sees his younger brother Benjamin, he couldn't control himself. He bursts out in tears. He had to run out of the room, go to find a private place to weep because he has not seen his little brother grow up, and all those emotions come rushing in. So he returns. He sits separate from them, as it would be the custom in Egypt, because these people were disgusting, and they were they were sheep herders, and that was considered a, a low-life income kind of producer. They didn't, they didn't mix. So he sat in his place. The brothers sat at their place, and the Egyptian servants sat at their place, and he watched them. And once they'd finished, Joseph said, okay, since you've done as I requested, I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to fill your grain sacks and send you back to your homeland. So what he does, he had them fill their grain sacks, and once again, he puts the gold or the, their money back in the grain sacks, and then he does one more. He tells a servant, now take my silver cup. You know, the Yeti travel mug, you know, the really fancy, that high dollar, I mean, <laughs> take that one and stick it in the grain sack of the youngest boy, Benjamin. And he did. So then those guys are all packed up, their donkeys are loaded, and then they travel, they're on their way home. When they just get a short ways away, then Joseph turns to the servant, he goes, now go get them. And accuse them of stealing my silver Yeti, and you tell them that that's going to cost them their lives. And so sure enough, the, the servant runs and he chases them down, probably takes a guard with him. They, they, he says, my master knows that you stole his silver cup. And whoever's responsible should die. They goes, let all of us die if anybody is stolen. We have never stolen a thing from you. If anybody's found, they will die. And the guy goes, okay, let's open your sacks. And sure enough, each one down the road till finally Benjamin's sack opens, and there's the cup. They all began to fall apart like, oh, no, how can this have happened? And they began to say things like, surely God is punishing us for what we did to our brother Joseph. Finally, retribution has come, and we are paying for our sin. They pack up, they head back to Egypt. As they're brought into the courtyard, Joseph begins to tell them, why did you think you could steal from me? What made you think? And then Judah steps forward. He goes, that, therefore, I'm going to keep this Benjamin here with me. From now on, he'll be my slave, and all of you guys go home. Judah steps up. He goes, please, sir, if we go home without our younger brother, we'll bring our father's head down to the grave in grief. His life is closely bound up with the boy, and since he's already lost his other son, please, please don't do this. Take me instead. Can I just tell you what a difference a few years has made? Living under the weight of their guilt and their shame and what they had done, look at the change. Back then, these brothers said, get rid of him. He's a favorite of our father. We can't stand him. Get rid of him. Now the favorite of their father is not only not despised, he's protected. Their hearts had changed. This is a powerful part of the story. What we read this, man, I got to be honest. I don't personally believe, I know a lot of authors say that Joseph's heart was pure in all ways. I, I'm be honest, I find there's a struggle going on here. Why? Well, when he recognized them, he didn't tell them who he was. He accused them of being spies. 
He insisted Simeon stay behind and stay in jail until they returned with Benjamin. He kept Simeon in prison the whole time. He ate with them but sat separate. He didn't reveal who he was. He hid the silver cup. He accused them of stealing. He tells them Benjamin, I mean, all of these things. But here's what I believe. Even though he struggled, even though he's probably trying to work out, what do I do? Even though he struggled deeply, ultimately, he broke free of the grip of hate and resentment. He did not let it hold him. He didn't let it ruin him. He did not let it wreck the work of God. What he did, we find in Genesis 30, uh, 44, 33. Judah, Judah said to Joseph, So please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy, and let the boy return to his, with his brothers. For how can I return to my father if the boy is not with me? I couldn't bear to see the anguish this would cause my father. 45 verse 1. Joseph could no longer stand it. He could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room, and he said to the attendants, Get out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. Then he broke down and wept. He wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him, and word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? And his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer, and he said it again. I am Joseph, your brother. And he just for a little reminder, in case you forget, who you sold into slavery. <laughs> that brother, you thought I was dead. But don't be upset. I love this. Then he qualifies it and brings it back into the heart of it all. Don't be upset with yourselves and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you. Why? To preserve your lives. What you did cost me mine, but God did it to give you yours back. Crazy. This famine has ravaged the land for two years. It'll last five more years, and there'll be neither plowing or harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve. Here's the heart of God, folks. You need to hear this. Many survivors. God's heart is constantly revealed in Scripture, in story after story, that his desire is to restore humanity to relationship with him. And there's always a price. There's always a payment. There's always something has to cover the guilt and sin. And this is saying this this God who loves so much sent me here just to do this, to save many lives. So it was God who sent me here, not you, and he's the one who made me advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all Egypt. Then Joseph added, look, you can see for yourselves, so can my brother Benjamin, that I am Joseph. Go tell my father that my, of my honored position here in Egypt. Describe for him everything you have seen, and then bring my father here quickly. Weeping with joy, he embraced Benjamin, and Benjamin did the same. Then Joseph kissed each of his brothers and wept over them. And after that, they began to talk free. After that, after this initiation of restoration, after the wounded reached out to mend the wounds of the wounder, after the victim turns to the victimizers, and offers love and embrace. There was a brokenness that came and freedom resulted. Freedom. They talked freely. There was a free exchange. They opened their lives to him. And this is what happens when Christ comes in and sets us free that we can turn to those around us who have wounded us and we can set them free. This is so powerful. And by the way, 
just so you know the end of the story, they did go home, they did get their dad, and they did bring him back to Egypt, and it ended just as the dream had predicted. All of them kind of coming and, and bowing down before Joseph. It's just how it started, is how it ended, with the dream fulfilled. But look what he went through to get there. Somehow he was able to get past his hurts and, and love those who hurt him. And I just want to cover four ways that I see that he worked to get over his hurt. First, refusing to collect offenses. This is what you and I can do as well. We have to refuse to collect offenses. I mean, we get so good at being offended. The whole world is offended these days. Everything's offensive to somebody. Everybody's sideways about somebody doing this, and somebody said that, and somebody wore this, and somebody named that. And Joseph chose not to collect or to keep a list of the bad things that were happening to him. We never once hear him complain about his mistreatment. We never once hear him sitting in his jail cell bitter or being victimized or calling himself the victim. Basically, all he did, he draws their attention to it once about his, this is what happened, this is the reality, but God knew it was coming, and God did this for a reason. He allowed this for a reason. He doesn't ask why it isn't, life isn't fair. He doesn't say the world should be this way. Everybody should be equal. He basically just says, hey, God has a plan that supersedes everything else that happens in life. It's called sovereignty. And that God's plan is sovereign. In other words, he doesn't make everything happen, but God orchestrates in spite of what we think we're in charge of. God weaves this picture together. That's the reason he is God, because he can weave even our choices that are absolutely against his plan, weave them into the picture that ultimately ends with the result he desires. And that's the outcome of a sovereign God working this together. Everybody seems so offended these days. The whole world is just finding, man, road rage. Tell me, is that nuts or what? Every week, there's new road rage videos out there. Somebody this week bashed in a guy's window, was hanging out his window, he's driving down the road. I mean, it's like coming to work on Tuesday. I was getting off the freeway, and I was just coming down, you know, the street here on Avenue M, and somebody comes zooming in and cuts me off. They had to get in that lane first. And my first reaction is, I love you and the love of Jesus. Bless you, my son. And... May I come up and minister to you? <laughs> and, and I'll be honest, this is a moment where I had to go right back to the choices that I've been working into my life, which is, let it go. This person did not watch all morning to see when you left home, follow you here just so they could cut you off right there. It was not their dream, but Lord, please let me cut him off today. It just happened. It's life. Somebody's in a hurry. They're not thinking of somebody else. They're just trying to get where they've got to go. Their world is all about them. And in that moment, they don't care. They're not even aware. And I had to remind myself, how many times have I been the one that accidentally or somewhat on purpose got in front of somebody <laughs> in order to get somewhere first? I've been that guy a hundred times or so. God, help me to get a grip on my attitude about life. I don't want to be offended by the ridiculous things because you know what I could have done? could have been angry at that, pulled up next to him, said something stupid, drove to work, taking it out on the staff, and all of it, just like a chain reaction, and things just get worse, and people get, why, why do we do that to ourselves? I had to choose at that moment, I'm going to extend grace because I'll tell you what, I've needed grace, and I'm going to need it again. God, thank you for that reminder. What about safe spaces on college campuses? Kids are so afraid of hearing something they don't want to hear that they got to like create zones where they don't have to hear anything offensive. Like for real, 
Isn't that what you go to school for, is to get opinions and different ideas that you can find out what is real in life and contesting views on everything? But people are so crazy that they're attacking fast food workers for giving them the wrong french fry or not enough ketchup or something else. It's a video thing as well. People going nuts, climbing through the drive-through windows. Really? Is this who we are? That's why Paul was so clear about this, that the love of Jesus is the only thing that can change a broken world. When we go nuts like we see in our world right now that is self-first, it is only remedied not by being more self-first, by getting first in line to get there before everybody else and turning fire for fire, but he's saying, no, you, you douse fire with love. Love is patient, love is kind, that is not envious, boastful, proud, or rude. And he goes on, he says, love is not easily angered. Another translation, it is not easily, you have to work really, really hard to offend a loving person. My kids can do some really ridiculous things, but I love them. And it's like, I know better. They didn't do it on purpose. If they did, I forgive them because they're just like me. And I did the same thing to my parents. And you know what? The, the thing is, we just can't hold on to stuff. We have to be the Jesus people who show the world there's a better way. Somebody has to do this. And the kingdom of heaven is the Breaking in of God's will on earth, his ways are alive and well in the church, if we love like this. What does it take to offend you? What is the list that you have going right now? Somebody forgot my birthday. Pastor didn't remember my name. I've met him three times. Sorry, is that personal? Anyway. They messed up my order. Somebody's teasing me at work. I didn't get the respect I deserve. I feel like they should have treated me this way. Somebody's having a different political opinion than mine. Don't collect offenses. I mean, make it so hard for people to offend you. Just make it ridiculously hard for somebody to get under your skin. Let it go. Next one. Choose. This is a choice. This is a decision not to retaliate. Proverbs 2.22. Don't take it upon yourself to repay a wrong. Trust the Lord and he will make it right. Joseph could have easily done anything he wanted to his brothers at this time. And he wrestled with it. I believe he was just wrestling with, what do I do? Had all the power, had all the authority. They were lined up. He could have smacked them right there. But God had begun working in Joseph's heart. And God had begun working something in the brothers' hearts. He saw that they were showing signs of regret. One of them actually steps up to rescue his brother, and that would never have happened before. And Joseph says, you know what? This wasn't just you. I know you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He has done this so that I can be a part of his great rescue mission in the world, and God's plan is so good. I can't get in the way of it by holding a grudge. I'm not going to mess it up. Don't take revenge. Let God fight your battles. He's a lot better at it than you are. Not only that, he's got a better agenda. His agenda is the redemption of broken, lost lives. Ours is justice. He will be just, and he will pay sin back. It is a promise God made, but he either pays it back on the individual, or should they cry out to God and ask for Jesus' sacrifice to be applied to them, he will take it out on Jesus, and their sins will be forgiven just like yours. That's his ultimate plan. The reason Joseph didn't take revenge, he was thoroughly convinced God is sovereign, God has a plan, God's will will prevail, and God can even use this brokenness and hurt in my life. 
I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but God can use some of the brokenness in your story, some of the pain from your past to bring beauty into your future. I've said it before, the poop of our past is the fertilizer for our future. It's the beauty that brings all that stuff. God can use even the worst. He works all things together for good. For those who love him, they're called according to his purpose. There will be a reckoning. People will stand before God. There will either be mercy for those who call out to, on Christ, who surrender and trust in what he has done, turn from their sins and accept God's gift, or there will be judgment. It is what it is. Plus, God's put in this little thing called, we call it karma, but he calls it sowing and reaping. It's natural consequences, and that kind of hurts too. But the third, third thing, for, forgive whether they ask for it or not. Don't wait for somebody to come begging. Ephesians 4.32, forgive each other as readily as God. For, so in other words, only forgive as much as you want God to forgive you. How's that? Only be as gracious as you want God to be towards you. Only overlook as many sins as you want God to overlook on yours. We asked Jesus one day, how many times should I forgive a guy? Seven times? He goes, how about 77 or 70 times? Seven times. How about that? In a day. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they do, Jesus said. They don't even understand what they're doing. I've got to forgive them before they even know. Who asked for it? When Jesus was on the cross, nobody. And yet he was offering it. God says, freely you've received, freely give. Forgive people, whether they ask for it or not, whether they deserve it or not, whether they come repentant or not, forgive people. That's what Joseph did. What am I saying? You're never going to stop hurting until you forgive. You're carrying it. It's hurting you. Fourth thing and final thing. Do good to the people who hurt you. Do good to them. Are you kidding me? Are you serious? Yes. Luke 6, 27. Love your enemies. Can I just tell you again? We're not going to get the results that we want in our lives. We're not going to get the world that we want. We're not going to get the kingdom of God unleashed in the world like we want it until we take this seriously. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And you will have great reward. And you will be children of the Most High God. You will unleash the kingdom of heaven in your little world when you do this. Joseph had opportunity. He chose instead to bless his brothers. Gave them money. Gave them food. Filled their sacks. Sent them home. Got their father. Brought him back. And they... Bless the entire nation because of it. He gave them the best possible life. Is that how you respond to people who hurt you? I understand we're talking about somebody who maybe physically or sexually abused you. I'm not saying you run back into a relationship. I'm not saying it's even healthy or right to be in connection or under, you know, in relationship with certain individuals. But let me just tell you, you can forgive and you can pray, God, bring them to you. Let all roads lead to you. Let them have a collision course with you. They need you. Many years ago, back in the 90s, Lori and I were in the dream position of our lives. We had our four kids. We were living in Tulare, which was my home. I had my family. Lori had her family. Things were going amazing. We had a great marriage. We had a, such a loving, awesome family. We had our little home. We had a job that was so fulfilling. Our church, since we got there, just, you know, we were the youth pastors and the associates, and we got to be a part of this explosion of growth as God did amazing things. And we were just seeing the entire community come to an awareness that, you know, this church really loves people, and it was so fun. And somewhere down in towards the end of the 90s, Lori's mom succumbed to her discouragement, her depression, and she took her life. Devastated us. 
while we were working through the recovery of that, our lead pastor resigned to take another church, leaving us to search for a new one. We had to find a pastor, and well, it just so happened that they asked me to step up, and I was the associate at the time to take over, and I gladly did, and it just was so much fun. Things were going great. We were having a blast. Church was still growing, and things were going well. But then there began to be some push by some individuals that I should be the pastor, and we should just move right, right on with Dave, and just, just keep going. It's, everything's going great. And, and then another staff member, our music guy, put his name in for the position, and you know, my name and his name, and then there just began to be like some tension and some factions, and then it got really, really ugly, and people tried to force this thing to happen with petitions, and I'm like, I will not be a part of that. That is not the way this works. So to save that pain of watching a church divide, um, and by the way, I was accused of all kinds of manipulation and other things, and I'm like, man, all I'm doing is getting up and doing what they've asked me to do. People slashed our tires, people wrote anonymous letters, people said horrible things about me and to me and my family, and I'm like, my gosh, I, I don't get it at all. So I stepped back. They hired another guy, and, and we began looking for our next opportunity. A position opened up at a church here in Lancaster, and which now became Journey Church. We were elected. We came. We began serving. But it wasn't the dream that we had thought of because we had learned in our former youth ministry particularly that our hearts beat for people who had not necessarily been in church their whole life. We love everybody who's a church person, but we, we realize that there are so many who have never heard the good, loving words of God, who've never experienced church in a way that was meaningful to them. Church to them meant religion, it meant all these rules, it just meant so many hard things that didn't even make sense. And for us, our hearts beat for explaining and bringing people who did not have experience in church or with God the opportunity to hear it. So we began to implement those dreams and those ideas in the way we'd done our student ministry that exploded. We did that in our adult ministry here and people misunderstood it again because I kept talking about reaching outside of our four walls and considering you know, those people out there as prime importance. Jesus left, said to leave the 90, the Father left the 99 to go after the one. Let's go after the one. Let's love here, but let's go out there and let's make a difference. And, and I was so misunderstood. People began to say, you know, I was trying to, you know, whatever, liberalize the church. And I was saying that you couldn't even say the name of Jesus because it might offend people. I'm like, what in the world is wrong with you? Again, people slash my tires. They like my tires. I don't know what the deal is. People, or they hate my tires. I don't know which, but they're just tires, people. But they did horrible things, said horrible things. Church just kind of like went its different directions. And I felt like perhaps I was just in this wilderness that I have no idea, God, why you brought me here. I was living the life, the dream life of blessing in my father's, you know, home or hometown. And I was having all these beautiful friendships and all this stuff. And why would you bring me out of that? And folks, can I honestly tell you that as Lori and I have wrestled through some years of struggle here and continue to hold fast to what we believe God put in our hearts, we are so grateful that we have baptized hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of those people, those ones that were separated, have found home. And even if, even if just to find another church later, I'm so grateful that we have had that opportunity. I'm so grateful as I look around this packed crowd that people have said, you know what, there is, there's a place for me at Journey. And I might not have fit somewhere else. I might not have got that other thing. My other church didn't really make sense to me. And, and I feel like I'm connecting with God here. I feel like I'm growing here. And I just want to tell you, I'm living the dream. 
because I believe God has brought some very painful circumstances of my life to a place of flourishing, and you're a part of it. And I just think God wants to take the brokenness of your dreams and the places that some of you are right now where you feel like it's off the, it's off the rails, the thing is never going to be redeemed, I can't ever get back to the life I, I dreamed of. It's just not true. It may be a different, it's circuitous, it's not straight. It's going to take you this way, but God is still in charge. When you surrender your life to him, he still has command over the future. And I believe if you learn this tool, learn this, that you get practice in good at forgiving those who have offended you, releasing the pain of your past, God is going to lead you to the beauty of your future. And I want to pray for you today as we wrap up our series and ask God's blessing on us. God, as we close today, I'm so grateful for a story like Joseph's that brings us the reality of what happens when people trust you in spite of the nutso world we live in. When people hold fast to you, when everything else goes wrong, when everything turns against them, when nothing is fair, when the world isn't just, and the things, circumstances are brutal, you are still God. And when we hold to you, you bring beauty out of the ashes, and I'm so grateful for what you did in Joseph, and I'm so grateful for what you've done in me. And God, my prayer is that you would show my friends a journey here today and those who are watching online that there is still a God in heaven who's deeply in love with them. And if we turn to you, confess our sins, you'll forgive them. Turn from our way to your way. You will lead us to new lives. And God, I pray that everybody who is hearing this today would turn and open their hearts to you confessing our sins, turning from our rebellion and allowing you to heal us and make us new, putting all our sin on Jesus and then giving us new life. And then, Lord God, the power, the power to forgive that we just don't have in ourselves. I pray that would be true of everyone here. We love you. We speak to you. We ask you to lead us in Jesus' name. Guys, we're going to stand, but before we do, I want you to take a look at the screen because this is what's coming next week. Maybe. Come back next week. <laughs> Go ahead and stand and join us. We're going to sing one last song as we close out this morning.
church. Have a great Sunday. We look forward to seeing you next time as we finish this series and start a brand new one, The Healthy Me. We'll see you next Sunday.